well, this morning, as we look at Christ, our mediator, of Christ, the mediator, I want us to ask, begin by asking an important question. What is a mediator? Uh, Christ in this chapter is described as our mediator, so we ought to know what that means. My suspicion, though, is that unless you've been in the Reformed tradition for long, it's probably not a concept you would be familiar with. It's a biblical title. Christ is described as our mediator in 1 Timothy 2 and in Hebrews. But just going off of frequency, it's not really the dominant, it's not the most frequent description that we have of Christ. I personally did not grow up in a Christian home. And when I became a Christian, I was in the broadly evangelical world. And I'm fairly certain that I never heard Christ described as a mediator in that context. Christ was my Savior. Now, of course, Christ is our Savior. We don't say, I don't say this to be negative about evangelicals, to contradict them. Christ is our Savior, no question. But in order for a conversation, a discussion of Christ as our mediator to make sense, there's a necessary context that is missing in the broader evangelical world. And that's the context of chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession. That is the context of covenant. Mediators make sense when we think in terms of covenant. Now, this is slightly different from what a mediator does in our current legal context. Legally speaking, today, if you want to go on the internet and search for a mediator, you'd be looking for someone who stands between two opposing parties and attempts to facilitate and to bring about some sort of reconciliation, to bring about some sort of resolution. Covenantally, though, there's a slightly different emphasis. Covenantally, a mediator is not just the one who attempts resolution. He brings it about. A mediator, in this sense, is one who stands between two opposing parties and actually brings them together. So, this morning we're going to look at the office of mediator and just two points. First, what this office is, what it accomplishes. And then second, what kind of mediator we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, first, the office of mediator. As we get into this discussion of the office of mediator, let's begin by asking why. Why do we need a mediator? Why are we at odds with our creator? Because this is not how Adam was created. Before the fall, Adam entered into what is called here a covenant of works in chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession. He entered into a covenantal relationship with God. And at that time, before the fall, we were in covenant with God. Adam, our head, walked in the garden with God. But the fall <coughs> changed all that. Because of the fall, those in Adam are at enmity with God. We have, in Adam, no right to stand before a holy and perfect God. We've been cast out of Eden. We are not allowed in his presence. And so... We need a mediator. Christ is the one who stands between God and man. Now we see, we see this exact same progression, this exact same logic in the Heidelberg Catechism. We deserve the just condemnation of God and we cannot pay for ourselves. So we need one who is both God and man 
to stand in our place. God, in His grace, chose and ordained the Lord Jesus to stand in our place. He chose His only begotten Son to be the mediator between God and man. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 18, tells us who is this? This is Christ, our mediator. But again, what does that mean? What does the mediator do? Well, Westminster Confession, chapter 8, section 1, tells us there are a few different aspects of this office. First, he's our prophet, priest, and king. He's the ultimate fulfillment of these offices that we see throughout the Old Testament. He's a prophet greater than Moses. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek and greater than Aaron. And he's a king greater than David. I've heard it said that the office of mediator is really these three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And if you read in the Westminster uh, Larger and Shorter Catechisms, and you can see this also in our Heidelberg Catechism, we see how Christ fulfills these offices. So Christ, as the prophet, speaks to us. He tells us, first, the requirement of the law to which we cannot attain, and then he gives us the sweet gospel by which we are made right with our Creator. Christ, as our priest, as our high priest, gave himself for us to satisfy the just demands of the Father and to reconcile us to the Father. And he continues and makes intercession on our behalf in the presence at the right hand of our Father. And Christ, as our King, has subdued us to himself. He protects and defends us. And he will, he is restraining and will ultimately defeat all his and our enemies. So Christ, in these three offices, he instructs us what this mediator does. We're not only instructed and supported and encouraged to be right with God, in these three offices, reconciliation is actually accomplished. So praise God for that, because we have Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. I've often heard that the Westminster Confession is cold and objective. It lacks the comfort like the Heidelberg Catechism, and perhaps that's true in general. But consider what else this amazing paragraph of the Westminster Confession says. Christ is our head and Savior in the church. He is the head, and we are the body, united to Him. We are saved by His work, His passive and active obedience, and adopted and brought into the church. Also, Christ is the heir of all things, the firstborn of all creation, and Christ is judge of the world. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning, and will one day come again to judge the world. Consider this. We are fellow heirs with the one who is the heir of all things. And consider this. The judge of all the earth is the same one who stands in our place to make us right, to have his righteousness imputed to us. Are you not comforted by these things? That's not all. The result is most glorious, that we, his people, who were given to the Son, were redeemed called and justified. We are currently being sanctified and we will be glorified. And this is an amazing and a glorious thing for which we praise Christ, our mediator. This ought to be a comfort to you. These are not just wooden, objective things that we say about our Lord. 
These things comfort us because we know that we are in Him. He is our head. We are given to Him from all eternity, and these glorious truths are worked out in time. But the question remains, who could accomplish all that this office requires? Or, in speaking reverently and carefully, we might ask, what is this mediator? And again, we consider the logic that we see in Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 5. Neither we nor any creature could possibly save ourselves. So what kind of mediator do we need? One who is both God and man. What we have here in paragraph 2, then, describes that for us. And what we have is the truth of Scripture, but the level of precision that's here in the second paragraph, you should understand, is the result of hundreds of years of discussion and debate about what the Scriptures reveal to us about Christ. The Scriptures describe a man who has the properties and attributes of a man, just like you and me. And the Scriptures describe this same person with the names, with the attributes, recount him doing the works, and recount him being worshipped like God. So how do we understand those two things? On the one hand, we see a man who is treated like God. Well, uh, Pastor Fritz was kind enough to put this lovely box up on the board here for me this morning. Um, because this box helps me to think about how to describe this, so I'm sharing it with you. This is not my invention. This was actually developed and shared by two men at basically the same time, which I think is funny. A guy named Fred Sanders at Biola and another guy named David McLeod at Emmaus Bible College. Uh, but they, they developed this box. It's called the Chalcedonian Box. And it helps us to think and speak about the hypostatic union, which is how we describe that our Lord Jesus is both God and man and one person and two natures. And it helps give us some boundaries to make sure our language stays true to what the scriptures reveal. So think of it this way. When thinking or speaking about the Lord Jesus, our mediator, the God-man, our language should be inside this box. If we say something that goes outside, we violate one of these walls, we break one of these walls, then we're in error. And these four walls that you see up here are really just a summary of exactly what we see in the second paragraph of Westminster Confession, chapter 8. So, first things first. You can look at the top of the box up here. Christ is God. Christ is very and eternal God. The man, Jesus Christ, that we see in the Gospels and discussed in the rest of the Scripture, again, he's given the names of God. He is described with the attributes of God. He does works that only God can do, and he's worshipped as only God can be worshipped. If he is not God, then remember the Pharisees were right in wanting to stone him for saying, I am. Of course, he is God. He is of one substance and equal with the Father. Again, this is, what we have in paragraph 2 is the result of hundreds of years of discussion and debate. And in the year 325 at the Council of Nicaea, the heretic Arius, where we get Arianism, was condemned because he claimed uh, that, that Jesus was not actually God. He claimed that Jesus was a creation. 
But the reason this is so important, and the reason that we have this truth in Westminster Confession, chapter 2, is that only God can save us. So we need a Savior who is more than any creature could be, who is more powerful than any creature could be. We need a mediator. So we have, by God's grace, God with us. We have Emmanuel. So, we know that God alone can save us. We know that Jesus Christ is God. We also know that the man, Jesus Christ, is just that. He's a man. He is fully human. He eats. He sleeps. He dies. Only men can do that. He took upon him, to use the language of the Westminster Confession here, he took upon him man's nature with all essential properties and common infirmities thereof except sin. He took on our flesh. Again, after lots of debate in 381, the Council of Constantinople I, they condemned the heretic Apollinarius. Because the mediator must be like us if he is to obey the law for us and fulfill that covenant of works that Adam failed to do. So he must be like us in every way. And again, this is what we see throughout the Gospels. He is a man who is like us in every way, though he is without sin. And so that's the bottom. He is fully human. So when we speak of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he is fully God and he is fully man. But how do we understand that union? Again, hypostatic union, if you want to win at Bible trivia someday. Um, we, we understand this union as one person with two distinct but inseparable natures. And the, the confession here talks about no conversion, composition, or confusion. So there's no conversion. God doesn't become man, and man doesn't become God. There's no composition. We don't have some new thing called God plus man, or something like that. And there's no confusion. We don't call God man, and we don't make man God. And it's also important to recognize God did not come down and possess a man. He did not take over some other man. Jesus is a man in every sense of the word except sin. Just like Adam was created. He is one person, and what makes him unique is that he has two natures. As we see here in the confession, the Godhead and the manhood inseparably joined together in one person. Now, no question, these are deep things that are beyond our full comprehension, let alone a satisfactory explanation in just a few short minutes. But... I share this box with you because I think it's helpful. It reminds us of these essential truths, and I hope you remember this if you remember anything, that God alone can save us, and that the promised one who, promised one who would crush the heel of the serpent was a descendant of Eve. He was a man. And so, if you are interested, use this tool. And as you consider the God-man, and you think, and you speak, make sure your language fits inside this box. For instance, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have a soul? Well, yeah, he must have. He's a man, just like you and me. He has all our essential properties. That's what Apollinarius denied. He denied that Jesus had a soul. He is fully man with all our essential properties, and that's why it's helpful to remember this bottom axiom. That which is not assumed is not healed.
Christ had a soul, and so our souls can be healed. Praise God. This is what we read. Bring this back to John chapter 1. This is what we see here. Christ is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was and is God. He made all that is, and He gives us life. And Christ, this is the amazing thing, Christ, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. An amazing and shocking thing, that the God of all creation would condescend to take on our flesh and our infirmities, yet without sin. And that he would tabernacle among us to save us. Be amazed at the God who took on flesh to be our mediator, to stand between us and to make us right with our creator. And let Christ then get all the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Father, again, we thank you for sending down your only begotten Son to live and die for us. You saw that there was none to save, and so you came down. You chose and ordained our Lord Jesus to be our mediator. And so we thank you that because of him we can be welcomed into your presence, that we can be blessed on the Lord's day by the ordinary means of grace. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning your feet your sheep would have been fed by your word, that you would be ministered to them through the Holy Spirit and encourage them so that they can go and live and do all things to your word. Amen.